Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Ned Phillips, everybody, CEO of Bamboo. We're going to talk about his long, illustrious career in fintech. Joining us all the way from Singapore. Ned, welcome to the show. Thanks, Graham. Thanks, Mike. How are you doing? I am awesome. We are fantastic. Cool. Now, before we get started, I know fintech is the top of the billing today, but we've got to talk about something else as well. And a subject matter of importance to both of us. But we don't want to diverge because otherwise we make this a two-hour podcast talking about all things <laughs> carbon and lycra. Iron Man. Yes. Yes. Uh, you yes. Said, just give people a context here. I mean, all right, so people understand. Obviously, this is Asia Tech Podcast. But before the show, Ned sent me like, I don't know, it must have been about a 20-page email because he said, oh, I just checked out your, your LinkedIn profile and I saw that you're into Ironman triathlon as well. So I'm just going to send you, have a look at this email. It's like a 20-page email, like a race report of his race when he went to Kona. And then your qualifier and so on. But hey, let people understand the deal with Ironman triathlon. You, you qualified in Korea and then you went to the World Championships in Kona, Hawaii, which is the big wow. deal. It's like the Olympics of Ironman. Yep. I mean, you know, for me, it's like, well, okay, right, that, that's the deal done. This, this man is my idol already because you no, know, so few people actually qualify for Kona, Hawaii. It's a big deal. Tell us a little bit about what you need to do to actually get to Kona in the first place. Well, look, Graham, thank you for that kind of intro. <laughs> really appreciate it. And, you know, I think for me, it all comes kind of down to I just really like you know, well, I come from a running background in that there's nothing pro or anything good. I just, I grew up walking to school two miles every day and walking home two miles every day. So I was doing four miles a day. And then I started kind of running to school and running home. And, you know, I just always enjoyed doing it. And the reason I ended up doing Ironman was when I was 40, I actually uh, ended up having back surgery because I had some damage in my spine. And the doctor said, you should really swim a bit as well. It'll be good for you. And that's all. <laughs> I used to hate swimming. I think, like, I, I don't know about you, Graham, but for a lot of Ironmen, they don't, some of us are not natural swimmers. Yes. As long as you don't drown, that's good enough. Exactly. And so basically, I ended up getting into that. And then, kind of, I suppose, like a lot of entrepreneurs, you have a pretty kind of competitive type mindset. Got into triathlon and Ironman, riding my bike, running, swimming. And, you know, like, uh, like kind of like the playground peer group, a group of friends, we were all training and we were all like, let's try to go to Hawaii and you kind of realize what it means. And I think, you know, what it really means is you are in, in my life, you have work and I had family and you kind of have to jettison everything else in terms of social life for a certain period of time to get up at four in the morning. So to kind of synthesize it down to get to Hawaii for a nine month period, I swam about 20 K a week. I rode my bike three to 400 K a week and I ran 70 to 90 K a week while also uh, being CEO of uh, a company and having a wife and two kids and trying to keep all that in balance. Wow, that's a serious heart. I mean, how many hours is that training? That must be about 30 hours. Yeah, it was 20 to 25. So what you realize is you realize that, you know, so I no longer kind of either took a taxi or a train to work. So you either run to work or bike to work. At lunchtime, you swim and then you grab a sandwich or walk back to the office. I ran back home. In the weekend, I had an interesting deal with my wife. She said to me, you can train at the weekend as much as you like, as long as you're finished by 10 a.m. Saturday. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, the, so the alarm goes at 3.30 a.m. Saturday. You get up. And, you get up. Yeah. And then, and then so I was finished by 10 a.m. Saturday. I'll drive for five hours, run for one, 
But then I had to try to be human for the rest of the weekend and not fall asleep and right, be right. even. And that, that was actually the biggest struggle of all, not falling asleep at eight at night. We always have coffee. Keeps us going. Yes. Hey, what was, your, what was your qualifying time, just out of interest in Korea? In, in Korea, I qualified in 1021. Uh, it was a, a pretty hilly course. Uh, had about... 1,800-meter climb on the bike and about 800-meter climb on the on the run. So wow. 10.21, and as I think I mentioned in that report, I, I just grabbed the very last qualifying spot. So uh, I, I scraped in by the skin of my teeth, but good enough to get to Hawaii, which, right. was, which was certainly fun. And you've done it by age group, right? I mean, how old were you when you qualified? I was uh, 44 and uh, uh, six months, so I was kind of the oldest chap in my age group. So I qualified <laughs> in the 40-44, which is the kind of highlight of midlife crisis for Iron Man type people. Well, I want to talk about that because it, it's interesting. I did the uh, I did the ITU race here in Yokohama, Yokohama, ah. sorry, in this this summer, or just early before the summer. I was telling uh, some of my family about it, and they said, "Oh, that's great! You know, um, how does it work?" And I was telling, "Well, you know, we do it by age group. So I'll be in the now. I'll be in the forty five to 49 or 54 <laughs> age group and they're like oh this is easy no problem at all you'll be you know there'll only be like a, a bunch of you so you'll be able to qualify for the itu world champions like, hang on a second like if you've ever been to a triathlon race like everybody there is a 40 or 50 year old guy right you know, and they're all of that age group there are there are hardly any 20 year olds 30 year olds it all seems to be a specific so demographic right Totally. It is that, you know, it, it seems to be if you're at 40 or 50, you haven't shown the world your sporting prowess. It seems to demand that at 40 or 50, you cram on micro, try to beat up other amateur guys and then, you know, take great pride in that. But to be fair, it is fun for whatever it is. It is fun. But you're right. There are a whole I mean, I'm 50 now, so even in the 50-55, and this is maybe a little technical for this podcast, uh, but Graham, you may appreciate this. If I tried to qualify in Frankfurt, 9 hours 30 wouldn't have got me there. Wow. Is that for your age group, 9 hours 30? Correct. Correct, for a 50-year-old guy. But, you know, the pros are doing 8.5 hours in Hawaii, so it's not a lot slower than that, right? I mean, that's amazing. There's a... That's phenomenal. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of guys who are still trying to go fast as we get old. Even in the fifties, that's phenomenal. Wow, I'm amazed. I mean, the fact that you got to kind of Hawaii. Have you? I mean, one thing I'm always curious talking to people who have gone through that journey is, does it finish there? Or are you still doing it? And that, I mean, we'll come to your business in a minute. But you know, are you still training, or is that enough for now? Are you taking a break? I have taken a break not because I don't love Iron Man, and I absolutely do, and I do want to go back. One day, I actually have a bet with a friend that me and him in the 80-year-old age group are going to have a smackdown <laughs> in Kona. So I will go back. But right now, I'm mainly just running. I have a different goal this year. So I, ha I didn't train much after Kona. Basically, just had to give some time back to the family. Um, I've kind of come back to my ultra running routes. I used to do 100-mile running races, and I'm trying to train for a 24-hour at the track this year. So I'm trying to run 100 miles at the track in 24 hours. So I've been really just running a lot this on a, year. On a track? Yeah. Is that just how many, how many laps? I can't imagine how many laps that is. 160K, so it is something like 4,000. Let me get that, 400. 160K at the track, so 24 hours straight. So I'm mainly, yes, I'm training, I'm, but I'm not swimming or biking. I'm just running. <laughs> right, that's insane. I, just, I, I can't imagine the, the mental zone that you have to get yourself in to do like hundreds and hundreds of laps of a track for 24 hours. 
Yeah, you kind of uh, you have to find a little place in your mind where uh, you just kind of live in that little place, and uh, it's I don't know, it's weirdly fun. As most people think Iron Man's crazy, and there's you know what, Graham? No matter how you think Iron Man's crazy, there's another guy doing something. There's, there's a guy doing ten Iron Man. Right, and exactly. It, it, you know, there's always somebody, and you live in Japan, right? Yeah. The ultra endurance craze there has no has no boundaries. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I've got a lot of Australian friends who, you know, Iron Man's not even the, you know, the the the, the pinnacle of endurance anymore. They're doing like ultra, <laughs> which is, you know, like as you said, it's back to back, day after day, doing an Iron Man, like Ultraman. There you go. It never ceases to amaze me the amount of silliness, craziness in the world, especially with these sort of male middle-aged guys. But hey, there you go. That's how, <laughs> how we roll. I'm happy, Graham. If at fifty you still think I'm middle-aged, I'll take that. Yeah, exactly. There you go. That's another story entirely. Hey, let's talk about business then. So, you've been in Asia for quite some time. You just put it into context. Where are you from originally, Ned? Uh, oddly enough, born in Australia, lived there for a total of three months. Then my folks emigrated back to the UK. So they moved there, spent five years there, emigrated back. I grew up in Scotland uh, from the age of, well, you know, a few months old till the age of 22 when I finished university. Then I went to Australia uh, in 1989, then came to Asia in 1990 and have been in Asia ever since. Right. So where did you land in the 90s in Asia? Uh, in Hong Kong, I got to 1991 in Hong mm. Kong and turned up there with, well, my girlfriend at the time, we'd met in Australia. We were traveling back overland to the UK, so we thought, stopped in Hong Kong and 13 years later with two kids and a job and a house and everything, <laughs> all of a sudden uh, we found that Asia was our life and then we moved to Singapore. So it was Hong Kong first from 1990 to 2003 and really turned up there as backpackers, stayed in a place for any of your listeners in Hong Kong, a place called Chunking Mansions. Right. Wow. Really wow. Is, yeah, we lived there for a year. That was. Uh, you lived in those. That, that's no more, right? Chunking Mansions is gone, isn't it? Haven't they sort of moved the whole thing there? Well, unbelievably, they should have, but they <laughs> I know, I know, they, they really should. But because each, it's one of these buildings where every apartment's owned by a different person, so there's yeah. no, it can't get sold yet. It was, a, it was a pretty weird experience. But anyway, backpackers, found a real job, family, kids, life, and then in 2003, had an opportunity. I ended up working at E-Trade and then being managing director for E-Trade Asia and that I was in Singapore and then Hong Kong and uh, but yeah so pretty much even 13 years in Hong Kong and now being 13 years in Singapore right so you were e-trade I mean you were in fintech from early on before people even knew what fintech was or used that word right I mean you were there late 90s e-trade in Hong Kong yep. that was well ahead of the curve was that sort of you know for you, was that sort of all part of the plan to be involved in sort of cutting edge technology or you just sort of, that's how you ended up? I'm just curious to know how that sort of became part of, you know, the Ned Phillips story. Yeah, look, honestly, I, uh, anybody who knows me well knows that planning is not my strong point. So uh, I cannot say I had any great plan. I kind of more of a life comes at me and I take it for what it is. I, in Hong Kong, I ended up actually after chunking mentions working at a publishing company, which I brought out. Uh, took it through the Asian financial crisis. And at the time, I was 28, couldn't really spell cash flow, didn't know what I really to do, raise some money. And as somebody new into business, going through the Asian financial crisis, that uh, was obviously a, a great learning curve, but meant what happened was we were selling financial publications. And when that came to an end, 
I had been selling to fund managers and brokers our publications, and one of them said, hey, you seem like a good sales guy. I see your business is gone. How about you come and work for us? And then about six months later, so it was selling equities in Asia, we got brought by E-Trade. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I remember going, who's E-Trade? What do they do? And someone said, yeah, they put stocks online. I'm like, wow. Okay, that was 98, 99. And that was kind of, suppose, my lucky break in that from a guy selling kind of equity trading over the phone, all of a sudden I was part of one of the kind of leaders of exactly fintech. It wasn't called that then. But all of a sudden I was exposed and it was amazing because it was 99, 2000, the first dot-com boom and bust. E-Trade, at the time they were halftime advertisers at the Super Bowl. I mean, it was it was fun. I mean, I will not, it was an amazing to be part of that. Obviously, that journey went up and down, dot-com boom and bust, and also the GFC and E-Trade has been up and down through them. But that, that really was you know, my, where I started in fintech, which is coming up for 20 years now. And yeah, I, we, I just got lucky that to be at a company that was then part of E-Trade, and that really started that whole fintech journey. Wow. So you're probably selling publications to people like Michael back in the day, weren't you? I mean, what were you doing back, back in the day, as it were? Oh, back in the day, I was, you know, working at a small company called Morgan Stanley. Ah. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard of them. Yeah, I think so. I'll, ch- I'll check my contacts. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I've heard of them. <laughs> yeah. So one of the guys actually, so the seminal moment for me, and if I remember history collect correctly in the fintech space, I mean, obviously Morgan Stanley, even when I joined back in 1987, one of the, so you and I are essentially the same age. I'm two years older than you are, 52 this year. Okay. But, but one of the things that differentiated Morgan Stanley back in the late 80s and early 90s was that they were one of the original partnerships that at the time was spending so much money on technology. So you'll remember the 1987 stock market crash, right? Morgan Stanley, that was on a Friday or a Thursday. On Monday morning, we knew, and I was in the controller's department, we knew what our positions were, which was rare back then because Morgan Stanley had spent a ton of money putting technology into the business. They also were the first people to connect to Dot and Super Dot. A guy named Ken Iverson who wrote the APL programming language. I worked with his son, Keith. Um, so Keith and the whole team that wrote not just not just um, APL but also started a business called A Plus, which was mm-hmm. built on the top of the APL stack. Um, sort of took technology into a team called Fixed Income Research at Morgan Stanley, and then built that out. They took over the entire IT department at Morgan Stanley. But when Josh Levine, I don't know if you know Josh, he was Josh Asenka, Asenka. he said again, oh, there was a guy at E-Trade. Similar, I'm not sure if that's the same guy, but... Well, that's the same guy. So that was the seminal moment for me when Josh Levine said, I think I'm going to leave Morgan Stanley and join E-Trade. To to me, like, tech to me was always something that was super important. So I knew what E-Trade was. It didn't shock me. But when Josh left a super senior position as a managing director of Morgan Stanley to go join E-Trade, it it gave me pause. Wow. Yeah, and I I thought, that's the seminal moment for me in the development of, of online stock trading. You had... TD had all the, you know, TD Waterhouse, you had all these companies, and even Schwab was an outgrowth of all of this, right, Charles Schwab? Sure. And but you for know, you, you were at the forefront of this. I'm so curious what it was like back then. You know, Michael, it's really interesting you say that, you know, you were at Morgan Stanley. Of course, we traditional. Someone said to me, I said to someone the other day, so this person was maybe 30, I said, oh, I used to be at E-Trade. You know what he said? He said, oh, one of the old school traditional brokers. Right. <laughs> oh, my word. I just know what, I'm like, no, we were cool. He's like, no, you were the old guy. I'm like, oh, my God. 
E-Trade's not even cool anymore. This is yeah. how much it has. I mean, you know, Michael, to, as you say, when E-Trade brought the little brokerage I was working for, I didn't really know who they were. What uh, the company I worked for was called Tiedemann, T-I-R. It was a agency only. Yeah, I was a Tiedemann guy. Yeah. And it took me a while to realize, whoa, maybe this E-Trade thing is a real thing. Maybe it's this online stock trading is where things are going. And, you know, I, you know, I wasn't from a tech background. I'm, I'm a sales guy, you know, a business guy, a sales guy. That's what I was. But I realized pretty quickly, I'm like, wow, I, you know, I kind of got lucky here to and you know what was it like to be because the publishing company i worked for i physically sold books like i walked around with encyclopedia kind of research books and sold books to people and so going from that to we actually went from that to discs so we actually put our information <laughs> and we posted seven floppy discs a month to people who then had to download them and now we got brought by E-Trade that was online and it was amazing. And yeah, look, what was it like? It was great because at the time, 99, 2000, 2001, E-Trade was one of the leading advertisers in America. They were coming to, and when they came to Asia as an E-Trade guy, people were calling us and it was, there was huge interest to try to work out what were we trying to do to the broking market. And, you know, the stock was going up and up and up. And of course, yeah, it was a fascinating time. We got really good insight into what type of tech, which today probably looks, you know, obviously slow. But you're right. All of a sudden, there was a huge amount of interest, and it was amazing fun. It was E Trade was a great ride, full of really interesting people, really trying to do different stuff. And look, when when the dot com boom was booming, when your stock price is going up ten percent a day, a day, right? Yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean you're ten percent better every day. But it's pretty hard not to feel like that, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, at the pu- at the pub at the end of the day, you're definitely the guy who's buying drinks for everybody, for sure. <laughs> Particularly if people know. But it's interesting that you say this, right? So to me, one of the interesting things is not so much that you were selling books and DVDs to people. What's more interesting to me is that people were actually buying them. Yeah. Right? So that was their way to get information and consolidate information. And what E-Trade did back in the day, first of all, it's in the name. We used to say this um, when we were working, right? The E is the is the electronic. Just like there was e-commerce, there was e-trading, and no one was ahead of it as much as the team was at e-trade. It just basically changed the entire paradigm for what online stock trading was. And it was kind of like the time you bought your first book from Amazon, yep. and you thought, is this book really going to show up at my <laughs> doorstep? And it could have taken a week or two weeks. You didn't really know. I forget what the delivery time was back in 1998 and 1999, but it was kind of the same thing for stock trading. Is this thing really going to settle? And it, my guess is, so if you were selling stocks over the phone at Tiedemann, Tiedemann probably had a license on the, on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Yes, yeah? we did. Yes, we yeah, did. So when E-Trade bought Tiedemann, not for nothing, all they were really doing was buying an exchange license. That is correct. An exchange membership. Like, that's really it. And they could have gone out and bought Morgan Stanley, or they could have bought CLSA, or they could have bought, you know, any ITG, really. But they said, who's the cheapest broker we can buy so we can have exchange connectivity? And that was probably, at the time, Tiedemann, among some of the other local brokers who were very unlikely to sell. You know, interestingly, you mentioned ITG and CLSA, because I worked at both of them uh, subsequently as well. So, yeah, and, <laughs> and see, so it's, it's interesting to me. I mean, obviously, I've done a little bit of research, right? But the BlockSec... Um, Mm. Um, product at, and all these dark pools were something that sort of grew out of 
the whole bunch. We did. I was a portfolio trader when I was at uh, Deutsche Bank and also at Goldman Sachs, right? And then for the rest of my career, so I did portfolio trading for a long time, which meant that we were trading, as you know, lists of stocks. Sure. And if you're a list of stocks trader, the ability to get liquidity off exchange leads you into a product like BlockSec or Chai East or any of the other sort of um, products that got created back then. Obviously, Goldman developed their own sort of dark pool, but I'm curious how that was. So you go from E-Trade, and now maybe when you joined E-Trade, you didn't really know that much about the bro- you know, the online brokerage business. Sure. But by the time you were left E-Trade, you know, as just somebody who's intellectually curious, now you're thinking, oh my God, I'm armed with all of this information and all of this business sense. When you get hired at BlockSec, that was in Singapore, I'm guessing, yeah? Correct. For CLSA, which really at the time... I don't know so much today because I haven't looked at it, but at the time, was literally the premier kind of trading house and sort of an agency-only broker in Southeast Asia, if that's fair. Correct. Right, and if you know, I mean, I know tons of people, Bruce Benson, all the people that kind of ran the business. I know Bruce really well. It's hard not to know Bruce, really. (laughs) (laughs) That's Um, true. Yeah, so if you went to the Hong Kong Sevens and didn't know Bruce, I don't really know how you survived. But... I know, I know, and you know, what's his name? Sean McDonough and all these people that are in the Tokyo business of CLSA. But to me, the whole business was, it was all going electronic, right? So we wrote some of the first algorithms back in the day, whether that was a Deutsche Banker through the, um, through the business that, uh, that Goldman bought, um, to, that was the algorithmic trading business. But I'm curious what it looked like for you. You, you leave E-Trade, you go to CLSA. What was that like? So one thing we'll say, CLSA was an amazing house. It was one of the most... It had a unique feature. It truly was owned by the staff in Asia. It, it was, was, right? It was run by the staff, even though there was a, a shareholding from Credit Agrico in Europe. It right. felt like a startup business in that everybody was invested. This was a team of people that had built an amazing brand, but they truly owned it. They had shares, and you really felt, and again, you know, nothing against a Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs. No, 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 no. But, but this truly was a huge startup. It was you know, still small in the brokerage world that had great respect. My challenge was different. CLSA at the time was certainly one of the perhaps least electronic-facing brokerages because they were able to charge really great margins because they had the best research. Right. So I came in as the guy introducing electronic. And while all of the traders and the brokers seemed to think I was a decent guy, they're like, oh, you're the guy that's going to reduce our margin. Right, and, and get, me, get me fired. I hate you. Exactly. They're like, we like you, but you suck. We got to drink with, not a great guy to work with, really. <laughs> so, so it was, you know, the, the the guy who ran, like all businesses, it is driven. And again, look, I'm finding out at Bamboo, which is, you know, we can talk about as we go on the the experience that you know it it, it is kind of shaped in your DNA a little bit. At CLSA, the guy that ran it was a guy called Jonathan Sloan. He had always focused on electronic and fintech type businesses. He created a direct market access product called G-Trade. He created one of the first kind of electronic uh, settlement and clearing platforms. And when he hired me to build this dark pool, he really wanted, he knew that CLSA, which was one of the first great research houses, had to become electronic, had to accept loaners. But you know, and, and, you know, guys like me that he hired, he's like, look, you're an E-Trade guy. This is exchange. It's different. But you are a guy who is coming from a fintech, well, the word we use now, but an electronic trading background. 
Great. And look, it, it, what I learned, one of the biggest things I so it was a great experience. CLSA is an awesome shop. They had obviously amazing conferences, amazing people. But it, I learned two things there. It was a startup that had been 20 years, but it was owned and run by the staff. The second thing I learned, and it'd be interesting, Graham, particularly because I know you've done a lot of work on, you know, from exits and built businesses. The simple thing I learned is that if you build a business, this idea, build it and they will come, cannot be further from the truth. No one's coming. Because no one's coming, exactly. <laughs> we, <laughs> Only we in the build, movies. Correct. Field we build a dreams. stock exchange, and the stock exchange lives and dies on liquidity. Are there buyers and sellers? And the biggest mistake I made, and this is what I kind of learned at Bamboo, was I built an exchange. We built amazing technology. We really built a great thing. We opened the doors, and there was no party because I forgot to invite anybody. <laughs> yep. And while it seems unbelievably obvious that if you build a great product, unless you bring everybody, no one's going to come, I actually and would love to hear your guys' feedback as well. But in the startup world, I still see that people build a team and a product, and then they try to get people to use it. And I'm like, whoa, from my experience, I've learned, get the customers first, then build the product they want, and make sure they're there, because you know, a, you know, CLSA was a great thing, but BlockSec itself... The, the biggest challenge I found was I built the I built the house, but I forgot to invite people to the party. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, this whole concept of, and I learned this really more at Goldman Sachs than I did at um, than at Morgan Stanley, and that was you don't have to build a perfect product as long as you get the customers in to use it and iterate with them, and they trust you. Yes, then you can build a much better product as you build more clients into your ecosystem, and and you know. It's hard to teach somebody that you really only need to be sort of 70 to 80% there if that and that building out the other 20% is both a waste of time and a waste of resources because most people are happy with 80% effectiveness and efficiency. But once you learn that, it's ridiculously powerful. Um, it's, yes. And that is, but also you build your, and I'm sure you're doing this with Bamboo as well, and I want to get to that in a second, but if you build a product with your clients, they don't even feel like they're being sold to. They, In a way, they feel like they own the product as well. right? It's like, hey, how do you want that hamburger? It's not enough beef, not enough whatever. Then you fix it, and they're already there hungry. Yep, yep. It's, it's, the, same, it's the same type of thing, I think. And that's one of the big things I learned at Goldman was because we built an electronics business. Remember, Goldman went out and bought Hull Trading, right, which was sure. a C CTA that had done the first sort of algorithmic trading, at least in, in the commodities and the CTA space. When Goldman paid $400 million for them, the, the street was just like, you guys are insane. <laughs> but that turned into a G, the GSAT business, which was sure. Goldman Sachs algorithmic trading, which then turned into, you know, obviously the future of the firm. Because it was DMA, DSA, all the stuff that you've talked about that you built, you know, E-Trade through BlockSec. And then Chaiist was really just, uh, you know, the Chaiex whole franchise was really just disintermediating exchanges globally, right? Yeah, look, I've, and, and, and I've found that, that you realize – you know, there is no such thing as a perfect product. You've got to get something out there. And interesting, we had an experience the other day. We were we've been working with a client to launch, and we then had a meeting with a wider group within. And you know, we're a white label, so you know, we don't want to build new every time. But obviously, like you say, you want to give them on the hamburger. You know, do you want pickles? What do you want? And in this meeting, somebody was saying, "So how is this bamboo product working?" And the guy turned and said, "This is our product." Right. <laughs> Wow, and I'm and I'm part of this too, and we are going to make this succeed. I was like, "Whoa, okay." Whoa. 
right there. I want that little moment, and I want to go. You know, I want to run with that. But but the reality is, you know, we've probably done fifty, sixty meetings with them, and you know, we set the groundwork as a look. This is the product we have, and yes, we can. But and you know, as a startup, sure, we're willing to do more. You know, I don't expect a who's a great software company, a Salesforce, to turn up and make all the bells and whistles change. Obviously not. But as a startup, you know, you go that extra mile to say, hey, look, you know, we have to make this something that you believe in. And, you know, that's another thing I learned. And again, when I built Chase, the second exchange, I actually got Goldman's Deutsch, Morgan Stanley, all these sure. guys around the table and said, look, I built this, but you tell me how you're going to use it. And I'll put those right. little bells and whistles because I need you to be part of it. And right. that's kind of, again, what I'm using that methodology today. So tell me you didn't have this experience, right? So when we were building out the first sophisticated, not sort of simple VWAP-style algorithms, but you know, index-relative, market-relative, time-relative, all these things that we built into, you know, not to mention all the stochastics and all the RSI stuff that you can build into your algos. But when we built them, what we would do is we'd roll it out first to a really small hedge fund, somebody who was managing 5 or $10 million. The idea for them was that it was free to trade, and sure. if, it, if it messed up, they were like, huh, eh, it messed up. Oh, well. We can't really yell at you because we don't really have any leverage with you. We're a $5 million hedge fund. We're just happy you're talking to us. The reality is we're building those for State Street and for, you know, for sure. BGI and for Scottish sure. Widows. So that, but by the time the product got to them, yep. and they thought they were developing it. They didn't know we were testing it with you know, Bill and Ted's excellent hedge fund, <laughs> So, <laughs> for lack of a better term. But once we did roll it out to State Street, they were like, this is awesome. This yep. does exactly what we wanted it to do. We're like, yeah, you have no idea what went on in the background to get it to this point. But you're probably doing the same thing with Bamboo as well. You pick some customers where you develop the tech with them, and then you can roll it out to a much wider audience. And that's actually the great way to get those customers on board, no? Exactly. I mean, and again, you know, we start like anything. You know, the first, the first customer we start with, you know, we got lucky. You know, we – I mean, in saying that we got lucky, I – you know, back to my experience with building a, an exchange without having the customers – uh, the first five months at Bamboo, it was only me. I had no team and no product. And I went out and pitched and pitched and pitched. And I kind of was like, look, if I can find a customer who's willing to pay me, you know, everyone says it's a good idea. and It's never a good idea until they cut you a check, right? Right. And when they, when they cut you a check, it's a good idea. And they were like, look, we need you to deliver this in four months at this cost. Can you do it? And before I'd thought too much about it, I said, yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then you went home and figured it out. Correct. And then we delivered it. And, you know, we actually, you know, we're just, you know, we're, and we did it. And, of course, it's now been improved and there's more. And we learned from that. And, you know, today we have Standard Chartered as a client. And, right. you know, what we're building with them, we, we think is pretty great. And uh, it really is becoming more and more. And so you're right, you know. And, again, tech's, tech's never perfect, you know. And, you know, of course, it needs to work and be great and and we're kind of lucky that robo advisory eh, it, you know, it's a new term online wealth is still an evolving process and we say to every client look whatever we build you in six months or three months or maybe even six weeks you want to update you'll want to change it will get better but we'll build you a great product you can go with but absolutely it will get better as we go along so what exactly is bamboo we haven't really talked about that and when you decided I need to stop doing what I'm doing and I need to go out and build this product or this company on my own. I'm really curious about how that happens and what it actually does. You said it, it white labels some stuff, but it's not clear to me and I don't think it's clear to people that are listening exactly what it's white labeling. So I'd love to know. 
Sure, absolutely. The simplest way in what we do is we put wealth online. And what I mean by that is for the listeners, if you think about what we were talking about for the first 30 minutes, E-Trade, 20 years ago, stocks were offline. And today, pretty much everybody trades stocks online. In wealth, so when you save and invest in most countries, it's still offline. It's still a pretty manual, pretty expensive process. And what we do is we build software to make it online, uh, uh, online, directly online. We build the software that people can interact digitally with their wealth. And we sell that on a B2B basis. So we go to banks like a standard chartered asset managers, private banks. Interestingly, we're also talking to consumer brands. So we think telcos and you know the Ubers and all of these different people of the wealth will, of the world will want to be part of the wealth kind of uh, industry as well. And so that's what we do. We build software. And so whether you have ten dollars to save, ten thousand dollars to save, ten million dollars to save. So we have private banking, consumer mass affluent. We build really great digital wealth journeys. We then integrate those with the banks so they're transactional, and they then sell their, to their customers. And so far, we found that. Pretty much every financial institution accepts that the kind of wealth journey of their customer isn't as good as it can be. And we think our software is probably, you know, one of the leading ones out there. And uh, that's what we do. We go out and sell sell this to all different types of institutions. So in the same way that there were multiple, you know, trading houses and wealth management companies, obviously UBS runs a gigantic wealth management business, you know, State Street Fidelity, all these companies run back-end wealth management businesses. You now have a company like Wealthfront, which is sort of garnering a lot of advertising space and a lot of sort of mind share. Yep. Are you competing with those guys as well? And are you competing at the same scale that they are? No. So they are for, for, for the Wealthfront, the Betterment, the Nutmeg, perhaps in the UK. They're B2C. So what they're trying to do is – They're going direct to the client, yeah? They're going direct to the client. So they're saying, we will manage your money. We have the portfolio and the investment. What we do is we go to the banks. We go to the people who already have customers, already have the licenses, and say, we're, we're improving your software. So we're improving the digital experience that your end customer will have. And, and do, you, do you sit inside their wealth management businesses? And is it, is it, is it the um, sort of high net worth management that they do, or is it really their mutual fund and sort of hedge fund alternative style businesses that are going to use your software as well and not develop it themselves? It's pretty much across the board. It's interesting. So when we started, we pretty much thought it would be brokers, asset managers, private banks, and it kind of is all of those. But we've also found that insurance companies have been really interested in what we do. As I mentioned, we found that telcos, for example, Korea Telecom has launched its own banking and savings product. So it actually, you know, it really is across the whole. So Standard Chartered that we're building with is a private banking type application uh, with uh, one of the insurance companies. It will be mass retail. So it's pretty much it's anybody who is selling saving and investment products. They talk to us to say, can you improve the kind of digital product that we show to our customer? And we have a whole range, not just the kind of UI UX, but we have some really smart analytics in terms of how they help the customer decide what financial goals they should invest in. And what we basically the banks themselves realize that building it internally is it, it takes time and it takes money. And in this day where fintech is moving so quickly, right. guys like us that can come up with new innovative ideas that can implement within a matter of months is a good option. And right now the demand is pretty overwhelming. I was going to say, so what do you write that? What do you write your software in? And it's a silly question for people who don't understand software and platforms. But I want to make an equivalency to something that's going on in the market as well. So I'm just curious. 
You, so, is it JavaScript? Is it like... Yep, yep. So JavaScript on the back end. So basically, the, the, there's two ways we look at it. Certain clients, in terms of a front end, we use like a CMS, so something like a Sitefinity, so content management system. The reason we use that is some of our clients want the flexibility to perhaps change a marketing message on the front end uh-huh. to be able to do that. So we give them flexibility because... And then on the back end, so AngularJS, JavaScript, we use yep. some Python as well to be able to do that. What the, here's the interesting thing we found with software where we, people always talk about innovation and disruption. And I often use this word in startups that everybody laughs at me. They're like, I'm, I'm trying to make a profit. Everyone's like, are you trying to be innovative or disruptive? I'm like, I'm trying to make a profit. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> there's so many jokes to make. Like, I feel like we could just devolve into humor <laughs> for the next 15 minutes if I don't stop myself. I'm going to stop myself now. <laughs> well, and you know what I found? What clients, what clients don't like about software is this idea that once you're bound to it, the software company will charge you for every ticket change, yeah, every change true. of a letter, every, right. every small change. And, what we, and, and they lock you in for three years. We say to customers, you can walk away any day. If you don't like what we give you, don't use it. But the more people that use it, we charge a per user basis. Separately, if we give you some access to the front end, you want to, so you've changed the color of your logo, rather than paying us a few grand to change that color, you can do that. You know, if you want us to do it, great. But we give some flexibility. So what we found is using content management on the front end, obviously on the back end, our database, our algorithms, we own that. But right. And so we found that we have a lot of take-up. We don't charge upfront fees. We charge per user basis. And that is obviously taking a risk that people will use it, but we believe in our software enough that we believe that they will use it. And we've actually found that there's been a huge kind of sigh of relief is, oh, wow, you're not going to lock us in for three years with ridiculous ticket charges and upfront fees. Right. So my view on this is, and I used the hamburger example earlier, and I'll use it again, and there's a reason why. Um, and you said something really interesting. You're not going to basically nickel and dime people for every little change. You're going to sell them a package, and as you update and advance that package and iterate around it, they still get it as long as they pay on a user-by-user basis. Correct. Let's, ba- let's back up to the late 70s in, in the United States, and you have McDonald's, and you'll see again where this maps into what you're talking about. They decided that instead of selling hamburgers, french fries, and a Coke separately, everybody was going to buy it anyway. Why not just turn it into something they called a Happy Meal? Mm. Okay. So you have to remember that when Microsoft was selling Excel and PowerPoint and Word separately, and then they combined it into a business that they called Microsoft Office, they thought, this is ridiculously innovative, we'll charge one big price for it, but essentially it was just a Happy Meal. Because it's the same thing, everyone is going to buy it anyway, you just gave them an easy way to buy it. The only problem is if you sit in a restaurant and you want some ketchup with your french fries, if they nickel and dime you there, you say, can I have some ketchup? Oh, and some mustard, and you get charged for that? You're never going back to that restaurant. <laughs> so we're not doing it, but you're not, right? And yep. basically what you're saying is, we're going to give you a Happy Meal from the beginning. It comes with the ketchup. It comes with the mustard. And we're not going to charge you for the extras because we've already built in that into the price. We know you're going to want more stuff. We just don't know which pieces you're going to want. We're just going to charge you a fair price, which makes us a profit and helps make your clients happy. So if you want ketchup, just let us know. You got the ketchup coming. It's the same type of thing. And it's not like, like you said, it's not innovative. It's not disruptive. It's just kind of a modern version of McDonald's Happy Meal, which has been out there for 45 years. And you're saying you're going to serve your clients the same way. So to me, it's a great business model. Like you said, you're not going to charge piecemeal and you're actually going to make a profit for yourself, but also help your clients make a profit too. 
Michael, I, I mean, I may have to uh, 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 use that analogy. I will credit I'll give it you for free. I'll give it to you for free without, without attribution. This, this is okay. kind of the CC, the Creative Commons license. I'll give that to you for free. He's going to charge you to use the PowerPoint slides, right? Yes, I am. <laughs> but I'm going to nickel and dime you on the periods and the apostrophes. Exactly. I'll get the bill in the post. But, but Michael, actually, it's a great analogy. And what, because here's the other thing we realized. Robo-advisory, I get asked all the time, Oh, Ned, you've built a robo-advisory. How does your robot beat the market? And I'm like, wow, really? If I had a robot that beat the market, I'd either charge two or 20 or keep them in the cupboard. I was going to say, I'm not selling it to you. (laughs) Exactly. It's mine. And what I say to people is, look, we're a software company. And yes, we have some really cool digital wealth products today for whether you want to invest $10, $10,000, $10 million, whatever. And we sell that to all these financial companies. But already, we have some new products that we invented two months ago that people love today. We don't know what it's going to be. So we'll have ketchup, mustard. We might invent a new type of mayonnaise. I mean, here's the one thing. So uh, people always laugh at me about this. But so I'm quite anal about Salesforce because I believe, like I say, build it. No one's coming. I really learned my lesson. I've done 984 sales pitches since I started Bamboo. Really? Um, and I, so I'm nearly at my thousand, uh, another 16. It'll take another few days. What I realize is every time I do a meeting, even if I don't get a deal, I learn a little bit about what robo is going to be. So I'm kind of like all day long. And I come back to the office. I'm like, guys, like we've just built a new thing called People Like Me, which is a data analytics thing. And you're right. If I had to say to my client, I'm going to charge you for everything we build. Oh, my God, I'd be phoning them up every day for some more money. I'm like, hey, if I keep giving them all my really cool stuff, more people will use it. They'll be more invested. I will get more revenue. That's my logic. Right, and I want to I want to hit on something. Sorry that you kind of glossed over, and I don't think you glossed over because you don't think it's important. But maybe you just don't think it's relevant for this conversation. So I help customers, I help startups raise money, and they're like, "We've been at this for two months, and no one's biting." I don't understand, and I always ask them, "Look, how many how many potential investors have we spoken to?" And they're like, 20. It's just so many." I'm like, "Twenty? If your hit rate on an investment is one." Right, and you've done one out of twenty. Now it's one twentieth. What you really need to do is talk to, like you said, you've done a thousand meetings. If I look oh. at the slide on your screen about bamboo, you say we funded, we founded this in February of two thousand and sixteen. If you've done nine hundred and sixty meetings, I won't even extrapolate how many that is a day. You know, and those are work days. So the idea is. <laughs> The idea is, and I think this is true actually for most businesses, right? Like I doubt, and I don't know this, right? But I doubt that Bill Gates, who was in sitting in Arizona with Paul Allen writing, you know, their basic compiler, went to IBM and said, "Hey, do you guys want to buy an operating system from us?" And they went, "Sure, you guys seem cool." <laughs> don't, you know? I don't think that was the, maybe it was, but that was in the old days. But I think today, if you if you succeed on your first meeting, sorry, shame on you because you really haven't learned anything. But like you said, you do nine hundred and something meetings. Boy, your 970th meeting is going to be where you completely own that customer because you anticipate everything. It's like you're reading their mind. Can we do the math on that? I know you said we're not going to do the math on it, but can we do the math on it? I mean, how how many is that a day? Well, so so on average, so the reason I do that is two things. Well, number one, look, I'm happy to be on a fintech, a, a tech podcast, and I really appreciate being on that. I'm not the tech guy. So my value add to Bamboo is not being the tech guy. I'm a sales guy, and there's two things. Maybe it's just my personality. I love talking to people. I'm an energetic <laughs> no. guy. Exactly. You'd never have guessed, right? No. But I actually spent, when I left university, I spent six months selling insurance door-to-door, commission only. And I had a phone book. So literally, I was given a phone book. 
I remember I actually had A, and there was a guy's name. It wasn't just. <laughs> It, it, it wasn't just a aardvark, but it, his name was Double A, and I phoned him, and he's like, really? You're calling me again? <laughs> he was like, but what does that mean, though? That means you've been through the entire book. You're back at the beginning. And you're not showing up. And, and, but what I learned, those guys told me, they're like, Ned, you will do 40 cold calls every morning, and you will do five meetings every afternoon. And I spent six to nine months, so that was 30 meetings a week. And I remember I came to a realization that, if you do 30 meetings a week, so my goal is to do 30 meetings a week. So that's, you know, on average, 120 meetings a month. So in six, so I'm actually behind schedule. It's been 16 months. So really, I should be up under one and a half thousand, but I'm also building a business. But what it really said to me was, if you do 30 meetings a week for six months or nine months or a year, and you do get every single solitary no, well, then you know your business wasn't a good idea. Correct. If, so I have four paying clients today. I haven't, we've done a bridge round. We did a seed round, a bridge round. And, and we have something today which we're very happy to have, which is intangible, which is a positive feedback loop. Customers call me now, so I don't need to do any cold calls anymore. My first hire was a marketing person. I've spoken at over 70 conferences. I find today that I still have to do all the meetings. I still have to go out and see people. We so I've done nine hundred something meetings. We have four clients. So either I'm bad at closing or no, because that's two meetings a day for the past sixteen months. I actually did do the math. It's two meetings a day for sixteen months. You have four clients, right? But think about it. It's four out of a thousand essentially. I mean, I can do four equals four so, divided by nine seventy, right? But it's so, so it's a that's the metric I think. And in, and that's a great result. No, are you happy? Yes, yes. Well, look, here's the thing in B two B sales. Where we are today is all the meetings that I did. A B2B sales cycle is six to 12 months. So that call, if I make a call today, I will get a signed contract in six to 12 months. I'll do a three to six month proof of concept and they'll pay me at the end of that. So if I make a phone call today, I'm getting money in my bank in 12 to 18 months is a reality. But where I am today, because I'm 18 months in, I made those calls 18 months ago and now I'm getting money in my bank today and my closing rate is going to go up and up and up because of the 18 months is experience. Yes, and of these guys, so I we're close to signing a guy that I met 12 months ago. We've probably met 20, 30 times. We've got everything sorted out, and we're about to sign them. And 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 that sales cycle is getting shorter because, like, we won best startup in Asia. Alibaba picked us up as, as one of their top fintech picks. We've had several rounds of funding. Now people are calling us, and you know what I learned? If I call call someone, my chance of a deal is maybe one out of 984. If they call me. Now we're now, now we're talking. Well, this is the uh, this is the point I was going to try to make using some math, right? Very simple mathematics, like multiplication and division. Sure. But four over nine seventy is forty one basis points. So you've had a forty one basis point yep. success rate. If you think that the real success rate should be one and a half to two percent, it means you've got five times growth built into your business. Yep. Yep. For sales. And, and that's going to accelerate. If, again, if you build the right product and you're contacting the right clients, the people that you've contacted over the last 18 months will see other clients come in. No one wants to be at a party where they're the only guest, right? It's the same yes. thing for businesses. So if you can tell them, hey, you know, Bill over at Standard Charter is doing this. I know you're sitting over there. Your bank trying to develop your own technology. It's never going to work. We're 18 months ahead of you. Here's what we're going to charge you on a per-user basis. For you to develop this yourself, the exact same product, and then remember, you get none of the ancillary benefits of all the feedback that I get from all of my clients. And even the people that say no are still giving me feedback. Sure. You get all those benefits, which you'll never get without me. And this is true for every business, not just the business you're building. You don't mind when people say no as long as they give you some feedback. Well, you know, interestingly, I saw a – and look, Graham, that is great because I saw on LinkedIn – 
It was a message that said, be careful of fintech tourists, these banks that come around just to talk to your ideas. I'm like, I'm totally cool to talk to these guys because I get something from it too. Like, yeah. really, I don't know all the answers. And, you know, if somebody tells me no, it's, I mean, coming back from my days of selling insurance, I got told a lot of no's. So <laughs> I, uh, you, you learn that, you know, your idea isn't the greatest and the best, but if you execute it well, you uh, show clients that they can trust you. You build a good product that gets better and better. And, and clients love it, right? If you turn up with a perfect product, you're only going downhill, right? You know, you, you turn up with a product that gets better, that, that, that they feel ownership of, and that you learn from everybody you talk to. And, hey, look, we'll, like all startups, you have bumps in the road. It's never easy. But, yeah, I'm a massive fan of, you know, e- even a no has great benefits. I agree. I agree. Ned, I'd sw- I wish, I just wish that every startup founder has the opportunity to sit down and hear that because, you know, what you're talking about, your sales background, you know, I'm a great believer. I've done this as well. I mean, I used to sell insurance as my sort of first start in business. Uh-huh. And, you know, I won't go into too much detail, but, you know, think of some of the things that you've done, knocking on doors, I've done that as well. But I wish every startup founder would do something like that, even if it was like retail experience, you know, talking to customers in store or picking up the phone, making cold calls, because just to learn those basics, that discipline, the numbers, the ratios to know that, okay, you can't control a yes or a no decision, you know, because that, you know, especially when you're dealing with a bank or any yep. large organization, there's so much going on that you don't have any control over. You know, there's, there's yep. sort of decision cycles and internal politics and memos and reorgs and all, you, you don't have any control over that. But what you do have control over is the ability to pick up that phone and make the phone calls you need to make during that day. And I just wish startup founders would do more of that. And that's something we, you know, sharing your story, I think is going to be a great way of impressing upon them the need to get out there and hustle. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, look, the hustle is, you know, where it comes to. And, you know, everybody's got, to, you know, not everybody is a salesperson the same way. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a deep tech guy. I, I understand enough, obviously, because I run a tech firm. I know my co-founder is a tech guy and we have 16 people here. And, but what I realize is if I can't make that hustle work, then, you know, uh, it, you know, no one's going to do it for me. And again, the build it and they will come. <laughs> yeah. no, you've got to go and get them, right? Exactly. With a stick as well. Hey, Ned, it's been inspiring. Thank you so much for coming onto the show today and sharing your story with us. There's so much to dive into. We've only really just scratched the surface today. I mean, you know, when you give a couple of minutes to Iron Man alone, well, that's the subject of another podcast, but your journey in bamboo as well, there's so much to uncover. So, you know, that's the subject for an update, a part two. Hey, that's Ned Phillips, everybody, CEO of Bamboo. Before you go, Ned, share with us some link that listeners can go and find out a little bit more about you and your story. Sure, we'll do. And look, first of all, Graham and uh, Michael, thank you. Look, Graham, it was great to, to talk everything and absolutely about Iron Man and Michael to ca- have some history back from the good old days of, uh, <laughs> you know, I, when, when I was told that E-Trade was a traditional broker, I don't know what that makes Morgan Stanley, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. Um, uh, but so, yeah, so bamboo.life, L-I-F-E, is where we are. Uh, also, if you Google Bamboo.life or Bamboo Robo Advisory on LinkedIn, uh, we are pretty, uh, some people say we're a little too prolific in pushing our brand out there in the little world of fintech, but that's kind of what we've got to do. So yeah, look, thank you everybody for listening and Michael and Graham for giving me the opportunity. That's Ned Phillips, everybody. Ned, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your journey with us today. Thank no you. Problem. Thank you. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. 
Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.